It's not. My apologies. I got a surprise. But it's okay. So you're on page 319 in your pew Bibles in chapter 19. Now David's returning to Jerusalem. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people are arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. And now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok the Abiathar and Abiathar the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not bone and my flesh? God, do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my armory now in the place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return, both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shammai, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharum, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet the king, David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin, and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his fifteen sons and his twenty servants rushed down to the Jordan before the king, and they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shammai, the son of Gerah, fell down before the king, as he was about to cross the Jordan. And he said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day of my lord the king when he left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the household of Joseph, to come down and to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered, Shall not Shammai be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What, I have, I, what have I to do with you, your sons of Zariah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For I do not know that I am this day over Israel, And the king said to Shammai, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day that the king departed until the day came back in safety. 
And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant, my lord, the king. But my lord, the king, is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord, the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided, you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come home safely. Now Barzillai, the Gideonite, had come down from Rogalim, and he went over to the king, he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. And Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed in Mahanim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to the Lord my king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay with such a reward? Please, let your servant return, that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me and I will do for him whatever seems good to you, and all that you desire of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over. The king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel, brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our own close relative, why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? 
And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were, were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. And apologize for surprising you like that this morning. You did very well for uh, having a, a new text all of a sudden, so thank you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Through it, you speak to us. We, we say that with frequency. We know it intellectually, but how awesome that is, that you, our creator, who has spun the universe into existence, you speak to us this morning. So let us receive with humility, with joy, with eagerness, anticipation, as we hear from you. And just from the reading of your words, as Sue was touched and moved to tears. A lot of these... A lot of these... Sermons, I, I title them weeks, months in advance. And I would have, I should have titled this one a little differently. Last week I referenced Lord of the Rings in the sermon. And I think this week would be an appropriate reference to that as well. This should have been entitled The Return of the King. Well, in chapter 19, after the adultery and the conspiracy and the murder and all of that wicked injustice, the Lord had said to David, and this is reverberating in our chapter today, the Lord had said to David, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of, the, out of your own house. So we saw that terribly fulfilled last week. As Absalom was slain, he rebelled against his own father. He sparked a civil war. And David, having just fled Jerusalem, fleeing across the, the Jordan River, escaping a battle that was seeking his life. And when that fighting had ceased, when David's armies were victorious, 20,000 of Israel's sons lay dead. David's own son, Absalom, lay dead. What we're seeing here in this text is that though Absalom sparked a civil war, he didn't create the divisions that, that existed within Israel. He was merely capitalizing upon them. He was manipulating them. These divisions were embedded within the 12 tribes long before the monarchy was established. But when the monarchy, monarchy was established, you had Saul, the first king of Israel, from the north. And then in the south the one that God really anointed, the man after his own heart was David. And so you get this polarization between north and south in Israel, contours of division that are ancient, 
but are being, are being revived in, in Absalom. And so after, after Saul had died, Ishbosheth was crowned king. You remember this uh, from chapter 2. Ishbosheth was crowned king, and, and then in the south, in Hebron, they crowned David to be king, and a civil war erupted in the land, and it was fierce, and it was a long civil war, but through David's commitment to Yahweh, to his, through his generosity, through his military tactics, through his politically astute maneuvering, he eventually does bring unity to the 12 tribes, though it is a tenuous unity. Fractures are just beneath the surface, and that is exactly why Absalom is able to raise up such a large faction against his father. So he's dead, and Absalom is gone, and it seems that the war should have ended. But the fractures that Absalom capitalized on, those are not gone, and in fact, they've only grown deeper. They've gotten worse And we, the readers, and David the king are now realizing just how true Yahweh's words were. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. So to put it another way, as much as David wants it, and as much as we want it for David, there will never again be true and lasting peace in Israel. Never again. Even this passage, this passage is shouting it at us. The civil war sparked by Absalom, it's not ended, it's merely paused. And so today as we look at this, we're going to see two things. David's return to Jerusalem is marked by uncertainty and division. And David's return is a clear contrast to the return of the king, to the return of Christ. You may have noticed it as... Sue was reading from chapter 19 that there's a clear structure to this chapter. There's a a sandwich here. Verses 8b through 15 and verses 40 to 43 are like the two pieces of bread. And then there's all this bit in the middle. So these two pieces of bread, they spotlight the divisions that that exist within Israel or that are growing even more within Israel. And that David only has a tenuous unity over the 12 tribes of Israel. And and it's also setting you up for the next chapter in 2 Samuel, for chapter 20, where civil war sparks again, or that same civil war erupts again. This, This temporary peace ends. And we see that David's reign is simply not enough to overcome the divisions in Israel, despite how dynamic of a man he is. So those are the two pieces of bread. That's what chapters, or verses 8b through 15 and then 40 through 43 are showing us. In the middle, in between those two pieces, are these three encounters. Now you might remember when David was fleeing Jerusalem, fleeing from Absalom. He had these encounters along the way, along the road. Well, similarly, and now in reverse, he's having encounters with people along the way as he's headed back to Jerusalem. Each one of these three encounters, we will see, is marked by some severe human deficiency. And each time David's confronted by the deficiency, he's entirely unable to meet that need. 
He's unable to overcome the deficiency. Okay, so let's, let's look at the pieces of bread in the sandwich, starting again in verse 8b. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home, and all the people began arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, who we had anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? So, again, Absalom fell in battle. His rebellious faction is conquered, and thousands have been slain, and so everybody flees. All these Israelites go back to their own homes. Now, when it says Israel here, it is really referring to those northern ten tribes. But within these northern ten tribes, after they had gone home, after they had gone home from the battle, they begin arguing with one another. And there's arguing all throughout these ten tribes. And those who had rejected the Lord's anointed, who had turned their back on David, they're now, they followed Absalom, they're now beginning to realize that Absalom was an empty quest. That rebellion was foolish, and it is futility to oppose David, the Lord's anointed. David is a conqueror. He's a deliverer. Look at what he did to all of the Philistines. God is clearly behind this king. So now that he has conquered Absalom, let us return to him who is the true king. This is the one side of the argument in the ten, ten tribes of Israel in the north, and I think pro-David voices are joining in on this chorus. So there's a re- realization of those who had rebelled, and then the, the, there are those who are always faithful to David, and they are arguing against those who don't want to go back to David. Do you remember the injustices that spilled out of David's throne, the corruption, the murder, the adultery? And so back and forth they argue, and there's discord in the land, and it doesn't take long for this contention to get loud enough that it reaches David's ear. We see this happen in verse 11. And the king, and King David sent this message to Zadok and to Abiathar the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? So he's heard about Israel's arguing, David has, and then he promptly dispatches this message to the elders of Judah, and he's hoping that that this message is going to unify them, that that they will want him to be king again. See how David says in the first part of his message, all Israel, again the northern ten tribes, all Israel has agreed to to join me. To, to make me king again, all Israel has said this. Now, we just read that that's not what's happening. But the, the north is not ready to go back to David. David is actually playing a little bit of a political game right here. So they're arguing about whether or not they want David as king in the north, but like a good, or not, like a politician maybe from Washington... David isn't afraid to offer some fake news and then immediately try to manipulate the emotions with it, right? So everybody in the north, 
They're ready to have me back. So, men of the South, you're, you're my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh, which is the exact same, which is language of family and, and covenant. And it's no coincidence because this is the language that the northern tribes had used to David when they wanted to anoint David their king. They came pleading to David, saying this. All the, ten tribes of, all the tribes of Israel in the north came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Same language. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So David's message to Judah that he has dispatched is effectively saying this. I'm from the south. We have the same blood. I'm a son of Judah. You were the first to anoint me king. And there are these covenantal bonds that exist between us. The north, they're ready to have me, so why are you so slow to make me king again? And then David does this other political move, and I think it's, a, it's quite a stunning move. Verse 13, this is the same message that he sent to the elders, and say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? Covenantal language again. God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah as one man so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. So again, if you recall from last week, Amasa was Absalom's general. And you know that David's general for decades have been Joab now. We've heard a lot of Joab. He's a hard man. And so it's rather stunning that when David appoints Amasa to be the commander of the armies, He's suddenly turning his back on one of his most fiercely loyal friends. He's turning his back on Joab. It's also amazing, this appointment, because last week we saw that Amasa is not a good general. He's incredibly, he's, he's much more inferior in military tactic to Joab. He loses to Joab. You'll see in the next chapter, or if you read it, you would see in the next chapter that Amasa's tactics are terrible actually puts Israel in a terrible predicament. But what David is doing by putting Amasa in this position, even though it seems like it's contradicting reason, are two things. First, by giving command of the armies to Amasa, it's signaling to the Absalom party, to this other sect, that forgiveness is available. He's trying to signal to all of them Come back in to this kingdom. Come back into this Hebrew family. You will be welcomed. He's offering clemency by appointing Amasa in such a way. Now, the second thing I think David is doing by appointing Amasa over, over the armies is he's punishing Joab. Joab killed his son. And I think this is potentially a way that David is getting back at Joab, showing him he cannot do such things. 
So David, when David makes Amasa commander of the army, it has its intended effect. It does what he wants it to do, right? Because you see immediately following that in chapter 19 that the men of Judah return wholeheartedly to David. They come back to him without reservation. They want him to be king again. They say, David, return. Return to the throne. We, Judah, are for you. So the men of Judah, they leave Judah. They travel north to meet David on the western side of the Jordan River. And David, leaving Mahanaim, he arrives at the eastern bank of the Jordan. This is a map from a couple weeks ago. But right there at the fords of the Jordan is where they are meeting. Okay, now we're going to skip ahead, chapter 19. We're going to come to that other piece of bread, to the other side of the sandwich. Look now at verse 40. The king went on to Gilgal. That means he's crossed the Jordan. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. All the people of Judah... And also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at, the, have we eaten at all at the king's expense or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David we also have more than you. Why then do you despise us? Were, were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So David crosses the Jordan River, returning on his way to Jerusalem to return to the throne, and it is not met with celebration and glory. It's met with this inglorious bickering and arguing. So all of Judah is there on the other side of the Jordan waiting for him, all the men of the south, but half the men of Israel. They didn't all come, right? Because some of them don't even want David to be king anymore. So you see that the north, Israel, the ten tribes... They are a house divided. There's not even unity among them. But then there's this other division between north and south. Because as soon as David crosses the Jordan, they break out into an argument, north versus south. The north has their ten tribes. Right? So they have, we have ten shares in David. We get priority. There's more of us. David owes us more. We owe David more. But the south counter with but David's from the south. He's our blood. And what are they really arguing over? They wanted the honor of bringing David across the river. Should have been us. There's more of us. No, it should be us. We're his family. It's really petty. And you see that though David is king of all Israel, all 12 tribes again, and the nation is convulsing with this layered division now. It will never go back, never go back to how it was. The return of the king brings very little healing and discord only deepens and divisions 
are the things that flourish. And I've been saying for months that David prefigures Jesus. But here David is a contrast to Christ because the one that we await is altogether different. He is the prince of peace. He is the light of the world. He is the hope of the nations. He is the king over all kings. And so when he, re- when he returns, there will be no division. There will be peace. There will be unity. Every division is finding its reconciliation in the king, and even heaven and earth are drawing together under Christ's reign. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christ brings peace. He brings peace between you and the Father, and he brings peace between us together. I mean, how can there be division when no one people can claim that they are his bone and flesh. For we have all been covered in the blood of Christ. We are all his bone and his flesh. Our differences and our disagreements, they dissolve into worship as with one wholehearted joyful voice, we cry out, worship, like we see in Revelation chapter 7. John writes, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. David's return is marked by divisions, by frustrations. But when Christ returns... People from every tribe and language will together rejoice that salvation has come. And one great reason why we will rejoice, why we will unite, why we will worship, is because this King, Christ, satisfies our every need and He heals our every wound. He reconciles every division. Christ entirely swallows Every human deficiency so that what's left is no deficiency. Fullness. On the other hand, when David returns to his kingdom, he's entirely unable to overcome any human deficiency. So we return to him on the other side of the Jordan River, on the opposite side of the Jordan River, where he is confronted first with the deficiency of forgiveness. We see this bit in verses 16 to 23. I'm not going to read it again, but he's confronted by by Shimei. Now, when David was leaving Jerusalem, we didn't look at this in the in the sermon series. There were a few encounters that David had, and the last, probably the most dramatic, was with this man Shimei. Shimei, he's a relative of Saul's. He's very loyal to Saul. And so as David is leaving Jerusalem, there's Shimei on the road watching David approach, and he's hurling curses at David. He, He says things like, 
Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. And on and on he goes, hurling these curses at David as he goes. And then not only curses is he hurling, but he starts hurling rocks at him. Imagine this. What an insult. Yeah, but the political tide has turned now. So here's Shimei. He's no longer throwing rocks at David. Instead, he's throwing him king that he had formerly cursed. Now he's pleading for forgiveness. He's saying, I know I've cursed you. I know I've thrown stones at you, but don't take it to heart. Don't take it personally. What? Forgive me for sinning against you, Lord David. Forget my wrongs. You know, he's really, truly asking that David would forgive and forget. How could anybody forget such dramatic, obvious offenses? It's incredibly disrespectful to be walking along the road and you're already grieving, mourning, weeping, and there's a guy cursing you and throwing rocks at you. And then Shimei continues, he says, look, I'm the first of all the men of the north to greet you. I'm the first one here. Look how quick I am to repent. So if it's not clear, Shimei has a great deficiency. He needs forgiveness. He knows he needs forgiveness because he knows that what he has done to the king, it's a capital offense. He should be killed for this. So he desperately needs forgiveness. No one insults the king like this and lives. He pleads, he begs for forgiveness, knowing that his life is at stake. And if you were in David's shoes, what would you do? Would you believe him, Shimei, that his repentance is sincere? Or you might think he's just another politician. The tides have turned, the tides of power have turned, and now he is, here he is at my feet. Abishai, Joab's brother, he's not convinced by Shimei at all. He essentially says, David, let me just cut his head off right now. Remember what he did to you? Inexcusable. Abishai is not afraid to cut people's heads off. We've seen him do this quite a few times. So he's being very consistent, unlike Shimei. But David, he will not have it. He does not want to see Shimei killed right here at his feet. And so I think in another wise act of political prowess, he forgives him. He pledges not to kill Shimei. But what you don't see right here is that this is an empty promise. This isn't real forgiveness. Because David isn't like Jesus. David has forgiven He has not forgotten, and his forgiveness only reaches so far. Because in 1 Kings 2, verse 8, on his deathbed, his very last words were to Solomon, saying, go kill Shimei. His last words. David's forgiveness was temporary. He could not forget the grievous offenses that were hurled at him. 
And Shimei, who thought he was forgiven, in the end, he found a merciless sword. So Dave, though David prefigures Christ, no, not, like, not here. This is not Christ-like. For Jesus knows what it is to be offended. He knows offenses far more severe than David ever faced as they spat in his face, as they blindfolded him and beat him and said, prophesy, Jesus, if you know everything. Who just hit you? And then they drove nails into his feet and into his hands. And as they did that, he cries out, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. So you see the difference? You can plead for forgiveness at the feet of David and not actually get it. You might actually get a sword. But you can plead for forgiveness at the feet of the cross. The foot of the cross. And then without reservation, without hesitation, And without ever changing his mind, Christ will entirely, forever forgive you. And your sins are washed away. Though you have stood on that road and cursed Jesus. Though you with your life have hurled rocks at him. Though you have taken the nails and driven them into his hands by your many offenses. No, if we confess our sins, as John writes, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Christ's forgiveness is not capricious like David's. Jesus was so committed to your forgiveness, to my forgiveness, that he went to that cross and he spilled his own precious blood so that we, in forgiveness, could live. Freedom and forgiveness are found in King Jesus, and so the mountains of guilt that ride on your shoulders, may they melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. And then he promises to separate you from your sins as far as the east is from the west eternally, and his oath will never be broken. This is forgiving and then a willingness. I'm choosing to remember it no more. Christ will never break his oath. You are forgiven. When Shimei threw himself at David's feet seeking forgiveness, you see that he wasn't alone. He had this enormous contingent with him. And among them is Ziba. Do you remember Ziba from the story of Mephibosheth? David had appointed Ziba to become Mephibosheth's servant. Ziba was a servant of Saul. Now Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul, David wanted to honor, and so he gave Ziba to serve Mephibosheth. So you would expect that Ziba would be with his master, Mephibosheth, but he's not. He's with Ziba. Or, I'm sorry, he's with Shimei. There's something that's going on which we learn about in the next section, which is verses 24 to 30, where we encounter Mephibosheth. 
Mephibosheth comes with another deficiency, a deficiency of justice. When David decided to honor Mephibosheth, he gave all of Saul's lands to Mephibosheth, you remember. Incredible lands, huge estate. It made Mephibosheth instantly and fabulously wealthy. And he had taken Mephibosheth into his own home. He'd making him like a son. An amazing story of what David had done for Mephibosheth. But then, when David was fleeing Jerusalem, again back in chapter 16, another encounter that he had that we didn't look at was with Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth. Now, Ziba was bringing David, and that moment that David was fleeing, he was bringing David all of these provisions, lavish provisions, really, to help David on his way, to sustain them as they were fleeing. And David asked him, where is where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba claimed that Mephibosheth stayed in Jerusalem because Mephibosheth wanted Absalom to prevail. He was hoping that if Absalom would win, that Saul's kingdom would be restored. And guess who would inherit Saul's kingdom? Mephibosheth. So that's what Ziba was saying. So when David hears that from Ziba as he's fleeing Jerusalem, his instant knee-jerk reaction is to say, ah, that Mephibosheth, I'm taking all of his lands away. I'm going to give it to you now, Ziba. All of that land is yours. So Ziba now has all the land. But now, chapter 19, here's Mephibosheth, and he's disheveled. He's unsightly. I mean, he looks terrible. The explanation for this is that Mephibosheth has been protesting the expulsion of David. He was not a rebel at all. He was supporting David the whole time. And as long as David was gone in something like solidarity, almost like a, a hunger strike, Mephibosheth didn't trim his beard, he didn't clip his toenails, perhaps. He didn't wash his clothes. So he looked terrible. He smelled terrible. But wait a second. Mephibosheth. Wasn't there time enough between Absalom's death and David coming to the Jordan River for you to clean yourself up a little bit? Why this display? Is this legitimate? I mean, there was time in Israel for their arguing to erupt all throughout the land. There were time to dispatch messages to the other side of the kingdom, but there wasn't time enough for you to trim your beard and wash your clothes. Was Mephibosheth putting on a show? Was he sincere in this display? David's uncertain, which is why he immediately asks, then why didn't you leave Jerusalem with me, Mephibosheth? So Mephibosheth tells this story. Ziba had deceived him. He was about to go with David when David was leaving Jerusalem. He wanted to go. He was right there ready to go. And then Ziba takes off with his donkey. And he's lame. Like, you didn't know that, David. So Ziba was slandering Mephibosheth to David. That's Mephibosheth's claim. Ziba was slandering him to David. But Mephibosheth saying, that's not true. What Ziba tells you isn't true. Don't listen to him. Ziba's looking for vindication here. 
He wants his name to be cleared. He's looking for justice. And you're left asking as the reader, I think, really? You know, Mephibosheth was like one of the sons of the king. He was in David's court. That means that he was a man of power, of means, and he really couldn't find another ride out of Jerusalem. It's unclear. This is a classic he said, she said sort of moment. He said, he said, I guess. It's impossible to know if Mephibosheth or Ziba is telling the truth, and David's caught between them. And it seems like everybody's already eager to ride the shifting tides of power. So what are you doing, Mephibosheth? Ziba, are you telling me the truth? And eventually David says, stop, I've had enough. I'm just going to divide this thing in half. 50 to you, Ziba, 50 to you, Mephibosheth. So there's this lack of clarity. Now, the narrative does seem to attribute a little bit more humility and a little bit more gratitude to Mephibosheth, but for whatever reason, David is not able to entirely vindicate Mephibosheth, and so he is left with this unsatisfying justice, this unsatisfying judgment. So his deficiency is not resolved. He has no vindication. He's been slandered and shamed. And you see that David's wisdom is not able to penetrate through the surface to get to the matters of the heart. All he can see is what's on the surface, like any one of us, and all he can offer is this unsatisfying judgment. But this is not like the king, the true king. We know that this world will shame us for our loyalty to Christ. And it will beat us down and it will make the saints feel that we are as ugly and as smelly as Mephibosheth. Jesus promised this. He said that we will be slandered, we will be reviled, we will be persecuted for his name's sake. And so you, brother and sister, you might have your reputation smeared or you might have your possession or possessions taken away from you, your hopes crushed, But Jesus always sees a heart that is loyal to him with crystal clarity. For he does not look on outward appearances, but he sees the inner man. He sees what's truly in your heart. And when he returns, you shall be vindicated. Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the redemption, at, at the re- revelation of Jesus Christ. At the revelation of Jesus Christ, upon his return, when Christ returns, he will bestow upon the righteous, the loyal, the faithful, praise and glory and honor. That is awesome. It's a praise and glory and honor that we will then joyfully, happily return to him in awesome, vindicated worship. And every unrighteous person that has slandered or persecuted the people of God, never having repented from their ways, these will face the fury of the king and his fiery condemnation, and there will be no flaw in his his justice, no 
lack of satisfaction in his judgment because he has heard every word, he has witnessed every action, and he knows the inner working of every heart. And so we see that there may not be true justice in this age, but upon Christ's return, there will be entirely righteous justice. And so we come to David's final encounter, where we see a particular deficiency that comes with our mortality. These are verses 31 through 39, the meeting of Barzillai. So just before war had broken out with Absalom, Barzillai shows up in Mahanaim, and he supplies David and David's troops with, again, abundant provisions. You see this at the end of chapter 17. And here is Barzillai again, and now we learn that he's a very old man. We didn't see that in chapter 17. We see it now. A very aged man, it says. So if you're 80 years old or older in this room, you are very aged, and it's what the Bible says. You're especially old for that era. Now, Barzillai is clearly deeply loyal to David. He had come to escort David back across the Jordan River after his exile is over. And so far, in chapter 19, Barzillai is the only one who comes to David not looking for something. He comes looking to give. And uniquely, Barzillai is the one who has freely offered things. He's come not to to receive, but he has freely offered things. He's offered to live with David in Jerusalem, to become a part of the, the royal court, to enjoy all the pleasures that come with such a position. But just as he has come not seeking anything, nor does he want what is offered to him. See, see how he's responding there in verses 34 to 37? He's basically saying, why do I want position and prominence and pleasure? I'll soon be dead. He says, what, what good will it do me? I can't taste food and drink anymore. I'm too deaf to enjoy the royal singing, and I walk so poorly that I'd only be a burden to you. So David, release me. Let me go home and die. So Barzillai is too old to enjoy the good things of the king. His life is too short to enjoy the good things of the king. I wonder if anyone in this room can relate to Barzillai's words. Psalm 90.10 says that the years of our life are 70, even 80 by reason of strength. So Barzillai is pushing the limit here. He's right at the edge. Some are here too. The Lord has numbered our days. And we will not die one day too early or one day too late. He has the number. And so you can rest. You can have peace. Knowing that he holds your life in his hand. Even still, death need not be the end, and 80 years, it's only a breath measured against eternity. And more on that shortly. But in something of a compromise, Barzillai says he'll go just a little way past the Jordan. 
and then he'll return home. So instead of him going all the way to Jerusalem, he offers him Chimham. And I think that there's an indication in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 7, that Chimham is Barzillai's son. Barzillai knows it's time for the next generation to take the torch. But let's be clear. Let's make no mistake here. Barzillai's generosity, his faithfulness to the king, his activity of loyalty, that is what has set up the next generation to go on with the king. He's done his part. He's not entered old age and then he's become lazy. Lazy, Not at all. Remember, he was there as the battle was erupting with Absalom. He's still an old man. He's 80 years old then too. And he's there to provide resources to David. And these resources are only something that have, could, could have come from a life of hard work. And now here he is again, having traveled again from his home, far from home. And here he is ready to help facilitate David and all his men and all his stuff getting across the Jordan River. He's not rolling over and dying at all. Barzillai has carried the burden of his generation to the very furthest extent that his strength would allow him. They cross the river. David kisses Barzillai. And then Barzillai goes home. And Chimham goes on with the king. What a picture that is. Do you have children? And didn't we not long that our children would go on with the king? That they would go on to a faithful life in the king's court? That our lives would help set them up for that? On Chimham goes with the king. You read in Jeremiah 41, verse 17, that Chimham was given a city It eventually bore his name, a city that was right outside of Bethlehem. You see the deficiency with Barzillai? His life is almost entirely spent. His mortality is undefeatable. Terrible deficiency, and David can do nothing in the face of it except acknowledge that Barzillai will soon die. Death will soon take him. But Jesus is a far greater king than David. Jesus proclaimed, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says, do you believe this? Jesus' resurrection was the death of our death if we believe. So 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, 100 years is just the beginning. This right here, this is the darkness of the womb. The pain is just the pain of the birth canal. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And at the last trumpet, when Christ returns, we shall live and be transformed. Paul writes, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on on immortality, then shall come come to pass the saying, 
Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Though you die, yet shall you live in immortality, righteous, victorious, because of the king. And only one king can offer it. Only one king has secured such a future. Just as he has swallowed death with his immortal life, so will he swallow every human deficiency when his abounding provision and grace stream towards us at the final trumpet upon his return. And we can cross the Jordan and we can go on with our king and mortality will not slow us down. And there we will enjoy pleasures forevermore at his right hand, and they will never diminish, and they will never vanish. We will go on with the king. So it's sad then, church, when we begin to look for solutions from our institutions of government and try to find hope on Capitol Hill. It isn't there. We cannot tie ourselves up with that. The best they can give is the best that David could give. Frustrating division, empty promises, unsatisfying justice, and if anything ever does come good out of Washington, you'll be dead before you can enjoy it. The world and your problems will not be fixed by the best of the world, what we, by the best leaders of the world, what we need. What this world needs is to find salvation in Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Father, we thank you for your awesome gift you have given to us in Jesus Christ. That you have stepped into our mess, our brokenness, our divisions, and you reconcile them. Forgive them. You heal them. You bring justice. You bring life. So we praise you, our great King. We long for your return. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.